Today is the third Sunday of Advent. That's the season of time leading up to Christmas where we are learning how to long for the return of Christ. Just like Israel longed for the Messiah, and he, was, he came, he took on flesh, he was born. In the same way, we are learning. Israel, for centuries upon centuries, was waiting for Christ. We are waiting for Christ. And so Advent is about not only preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ, but it's about learning how to long deep in your heart For Christ to return, to heal all things, to make everything right and good. Not only in your life, but in all of this world. This year for Advent, we've taken tour guides. We've taken as our tour guides various people in scripture who suffered. And we're learning from them the lessons that suffering can teach us about waiting. Now, two weeks ago, our tour guide was Job and the writer of Psalm 42. And there we learned about the kind of suffering that comes with serious physical and mental illness. We saw there that in times of profound illness, God is hidden. And in his hiddenness, he is going for the jugular. He's going for that, the deepest parts of us where we can learn how even when darkness covers our face, can we believe that God is there? And then last week, it, our tour guide was Samson, a very different kind of suffering. Two weeks ago, the suffering of innocent people. Last week, the opposite. Samson was in no way innocent. This was the suffering you go through when you ruin your life. And the lives of others through your own terrible actions. And we saw that in that kind of suffering, Samson came to the full flowering of his life when he turned in repentance and opened his heart to God. This morning, we have yet a third kind of suffering. And it's not anywhere on the scale of guilt or innocent. This morning, we're looking at the suffering in Abraham's life. This is the suffering of a broken heart. It's the kind of suffering you experience when your heart is deeply set on some thing or a project or a person. And you don't get that project. You don't get that thing or you lose that person. Think about it like this. Imagine the things you care about exist in a web. So imagine A web of desires. All the things you desire, a web. Now, when we talk about the deep and profound suffering that we call heartbreak or heartbrokenness, we're not talking about part of the web out on the edges that breaks. We're not talking about being sad for a day or a week even or several weeks. I'm talking about losing something At the center of the web. When you lose out on a desire that is central to who you are. It's particular and it's significant to you. Then all the other things that you care about when you lose it begin to break loose. 
They lose their attraction because what you wanted deep at the center of your being is gone. So if it's a spider web, if the center of it, imagine the center of a spider web. What happens if it gets ripped out? What happens to the web? When the center doesn't hold, things fall apart. Now, when you lose your heart's desire, When you lose a deep, core, fundamental desire of your life, whether it's your spouse or your child, or you want to be a writer and it continually eludes you, or there's some other project that you fail at, then ordinary things like food and water lose their attraction. Because when the heart is broken, you have no heart for anything else. This is the suffering of Abraham's life. He goes through this suffering for decade upon decade. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11... It is the first time that Abraham shows up in Scripture. And and when we first meet Abraham, one of the first things we're told about him is Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. Now, his wife, Sarah, was barren. She had no children. This is one of the first things we learn about Abraham. He's childless. And shortly after this, we learn that he's 75 years old at this point. This is not a guy who just got married and is struggling with infertility for a year. This is a man who's been married, is 75, and is struggling, he and his wife, with infertility. Now this is the deep desire of Abraham's heart. You don't know that the first time you read the story of Abraham. This, like many of the stories of the Bible, um, doesn't reveal itself on the first reading on the second or the tenth or the twentieth. But after you've read his life 40 or 50 or 100 times, you notice the deep desire for a posterity, for children, is the desire of his life. Abraham wants a son and children from that son. He wants to be a patriarch of a people. Being the father of, the, of children, the patriarch of a clan, the ancestor of people, this is his heart's deep desire. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God shows up and has a conversation with Abraham. The first time God talks with Abraham. In fact, There are eight times recorded in Scripture where Abraham and God have a conversation. And in every single conversation, every encounter recorded in Scripture of Abraham with God is centered on children. All eight of them. They're all wrapped up with Abraham having children. Chapter 12 is the first time. And look what it says. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And what you've got to know is that when God says go from the land and your father's house and your kindred, that's one thing. But suddenly the carrot of all carrots for Abraham, particularly, 
is held out. And I'll make you a great nation. And you've got to learn to read Abraham's life knowing that in that moment, that was the issue for him. That was his deepest desire. That was a desire he was 75 long barren years into. So God commands Abraham to leave his land and family and father's house. And if he does, God will give him the desires of his heart. So what does Abraham do? Some of you have read the story. No, look at verse 4. Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham's desire for offspring is so deep, he leaves his land, his family, his father's house. But, did you notice the last phrase? He took a family member with him. He took along his nephew Lot. Now, why does he do that? Remember, remember God had said, leave your family. And your land. He left the land. He left the family. And took a nephew. Remember he's 75 years old. His, his wife is barren. They have had many, many years to see. They can't have kids. They've been childless for so long. They know that Sarah will never have children of her own. So Abraham takes Lot with him. Contrary to God's command. Because like you. Like me. When it comes to his heart's desire, there's a backup plan. Remember when you look at the total context of Abraham's life, the first thing you learn about him is his his wife is barren. The last thing you're told about him has to do with children. Every encounter with God has to do with children. And once you begin to see this, As a man who is fundamentally driven by a desire for numerous offspring. Once you see this, you can reread the whole story of Abraham's life. And you can see that he leaves his land and his father's house. This is an act of trust in God on the one hand. But on the other hand, he brings Lot along because he has a certain wishy-washy trust in God. In other words, he's double-minded. He has a certain double-mindedness about his trust in God. And so as the years go by, God continues to meet with Abraham and to reiterate the promise that he'll be the father of a large family. And yet, as the years go by, he remains childless. When we get to Genesis chapter 15, it's the fourth encounter with God. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Three times God has already met with him and promised him a child. But a curious thing happens in chapter 15, verse 2. Abraham says to God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In verse 3, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What the heck? Where did Eliezer come from? Why does he have an heir? He has an heir because in the... Remember in chapter 12, God told him to go. He goes, I'm trusting you, God, taking, you know, Lot in his back pocket, like uh, the breeder nephew, just in case. He adopts him. He's the foster son. You know what happens in the next two chapters? Lot leaves him. And then all of a sudden in chapter 15, Abraham is not going to be a man who's not going to do everything he can to meet the desires of his heart. Just like you. Just like me. So he's adopted Eliezer. Now, notice God's response. Verse 4, God says of Eliezer, this man shall not be your heir. 
Your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Now that word offspring there, literally in Hebrew, original language of the Old Testament, it's the word seed. In other words, we're not talking about an adopted son. He will come from you. He will be your seed, your offspring. And then we get to verse 6 and it says, And Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. He trusted it. Okay, God, I believe you. And that, that was good for his relationship with God. But then, two verses later, Abraham says to God, how do I know for sure that this is going to happen? And what's wrong with Abraham? I mean, what's wrong with you? Aren't you like this? I mean, don't, don't come down on him. What's wrong with him? What's wrong with him is that it's been 25 years. It's been four visits with God. God saying, I promise. What's happened here is that he's saying, look, God, you've been making promises with nothing to show for it for 25 years. How can I know? And you know what God does at the, at there in the second half of Genesis chapter 15? He doesn't rebuke him. He gives him confirmation. He keeps working with him. But the confirmation is odd because it's, it's a weird thing. You can read it another time. It's the kind of confirmation that requires Abraham still to trust. God is clearly eliciting a relationship of trust between himself and Abraham. And the story of Abraham's life makes it clear that that kind of trust is hard for him. It's not hard for everybody. There's some of you people like Courtney Veerman. You were born able to trust in God. You can trust in God like I can lift weights. You know, it just comes natural. <laughs> this is hard for Abraham. That's why he took Lot with him. That's why he adopted Eliezer. Later on, that's why he has sex with Hagar. You see, the long process of God's repeatedly promising Abraham his heart's desire and then repeatedly delaying the fulfillment of those promises. This is not simply a peculiar way of producing offspring for Abraham. This is God's way of producing trust in his relationship with Abraham. Now we should recognize that this 25 year long relationship with God where God is making promise after promise that isn't getting fulfilled. This is not only stretching Abraham. This is not only challenging to Abraham because trusting God doesn't come easy for Abraham. It is also very painful. Have you ever experienced or known someone to experience barrenness? Have you ever had a friend or yourself long for a child and not be able to have one? This is painful. And added on top of that pain, the pain of infertility, comes the pain of waiting, being interspersed with disappointment, and then waiting again, and being disappointed again. And as the cycle goes on and on for year after year, decade after decade in Abraham's life, it grinds a person's will down 
into misery. This kind of pain breaks the heart. It wears the heart away. And what is Abraham's reaction to the progression of promises? Well, on the one hand, in some sense, to some degree, he believes in God's promises. He trusts God to keep them. So there's, a, there's trust of a sort in Abraham, but it competes in him with such a strong desire to bring about his heart's desire by himself that he always brings a backup plan. In other words, he doesn't entirely, wholeheartedly trust God to keep his promise. And we shouldn't judge him on this, right? This is, this is a thing. And through this demanding process, Abraham is over and over brought face to face with his double-mindedness about the trustworthiness of God. He's learning to trust more and more that God is worthy of trust. How does that happen? Well, just think about it this way. What if I keep having affairs on Janelle? I keep breaking the promises and I keep turning to Janelle and she keeps reiterating the promises. Do you see how that would, as time goes by, that as he trusts in God, then he kind of like messes up and makes a backup plan and then turns to God and God just re-ups on the promise. Do you see how that builds and builds and builds in him a growing capacity to trust that God is trustworthy? But that's not the only thing Abraham is struggling with with God. It's not only a struggle to believe that God's promise keeping is legit. He's also double-minded about God's goodness. I don't have time to go through it all like I've just done with God's trustworthiness on his promise keeping. Let me just show you one of the stories that shows a fundamental struggle in Abraham's life is that God is good. That's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it comes up vividly in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities, because they are so wicked. And at, at the end of at, at chapter 18, verse 25, at the end of verse 25, Abraham says, oh, wait a minute, God. And he raises himself up to his full peacock's ability. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What is he doubting in that moment about God? Wait a minute. You're about to do an unjust thing. And he takes God to task. And what is the particular act of injustice he's accusing God of? If you've read the story, he says, wait a minute. What if there's 50 really righteous people? Are you going to let the innocent die with the guilty? And then he says, far be it from the judge of all the earth to do what's unjust. And what is the unjust thing? The, the act of injustice is the judge of all the earth destroying the life of an innocent. And, and God says, no, I wouldn't do it for 50. And he says, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? And, and, and it's, it's almost comic, isn't it? And the fact that there he is lecturing God. And then he finally gets to 10 and he says, what if there's 10? And God says, I won't destroy it for 10. And then guess what? When God goes to destroy Sodom, guess how many righteous people are in the city? Four. Less than half of what Abraham was satisfied with. God is far more punctilious about justice than Abraham is. God that won't even do He gets four out of there. That's not what Abraham was satisfied. Abraham would have been satisfied if there were ten. There were only four. 
These four then run to Zoar. Zoar is slated to be destroyed with all the other cities. But because four righteous people enter it, God doesn't destroy it. God is far more just, far more good than Abraham even needed him to be, to be satisfied with him. This is one of his great struggles. He struggles with really trusting that God is good and with really trusting that God will keep his promises. He doesn't wholeheartedly believe these things. And God stays engaged. All along the way, he keeps engaging Abraham to draw out of him the capacity to trust. And he does it around the issue of Abraham's deep desire for offspring. This is the only way Genesis 22 makes sense. If you look, look at the first phrase of Genesis 22. After these things. If you do not read Genesis 22 in the context of the whole narrative of Abraham's life, God is a moral monster because he's going to kill an innocent victim. But when you read it in the context of the whole life, after these things, after what? After this long, slow, painstaking process of learning to trust in God, that I can trust him to keep his promise and trust that he is good, after all of that, it says God tested Abraham. Now, what is God going to test Abraham about? You know what he's going to test him about. What's he been working on him about for his whole life? Will He's going to test him about this. Not will he give up his heart's desire. That is not the test. Where has that ever entered into Abraham's life? The test is, will he trust God with his heart's desire? Will he trust God to keep his promise? Will he trust God to be good? This is the last recorded occasion on which God comes to talk to Abraham. And it is different from all the others. On this occasion, God abruptly demands that Abraham sacrifice his son to him. Now, how is that a test of Abraham trusting that God is good and trusting that God will keep his promise? Remember, every encounter with Abraham has with God is about this issue of his heart's desire, his offspring. And he over and over is double-minded. And the way his double-mindedness expresses itself is he always has a way out in case God doesn't keep his promise. His desire for great posterity is so strong, Abraham has been unwilling to risk it entirely. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 22... Ten chapters, four decades, Abraham has always found a way to trust God, but to have a parachute. This is the test. This tries the measure of Abraham's commitment to God. Can he, in this moment, trust that God is good? And that God will keep his promise. In other words, Abraham knows that this is not about killing Isaac. Because killing Isaac is unjust. 
Why doesn't Abraham say to God, wait a minute, that's unjust. That's what he did the last time he faced a, a situation that on its surface looked unjust. Does he have the courage to say that to God? Does he have the foolishness to act like God doesn't know? Yes, he's got all that stuff. Why doesn't he? In fact, he's silent this time. Why is he silent? Because he knows that's not what's at stake. He's, he's finally given in. God is just. This is not about the justice of God. He knows that killing Isaac would be a wicked, immoral thing. The test for Abraham is not, will he give up his heart's desire? It's not, will you kill your son? The test is, will he believe that in obeying God, somehow, in some miraculous way, Isaac will not be harmed. Isaac will not be unjustly killed. Isaac will not suffer. Isaac will not die. Can he believe in this moment that somehow the God who said to him, I can give you a baby when you're 100. I can do impossible things. Can he believe the God who can do impossible things will in this moment do a good thing? And will preserve Isaac's life. Because that's the key. This is the child of promise. Somehow the life of Isaac has to survive. And no harm has to come to Isaac. Will he believe that? Abraham is being tested on his two great struggles. And that's why he says to his servants in chapter 22 verse 5. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He be- that You see, right there, we know, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back with Isaac. Why? Because I'm trusting that God is good, and a good God would not innocently, would not kill the innocent, and I'm trusting that God will keep his promise, because all of my prom- his promise to me is wrapped up in this boy living. So somehow, we're going over there, and we're going to do this, and somehow, we're both going to come back. And then when his son, Isaac, says, Dad, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, where is the lamb? He knows somehow, he doesn't know how, but he knows somehow, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You see, the test is this. Will Abraham believe that God is good and will keep his promise regarding Isaac, his promised son, so that following God's command will not result in Isaac being harmed or killed? And he does. He does. He walks out on the limb. No parachute. No plan B. He believes that God is good and will not betray or destroy the promise. He believes that somehow, in some impossible way, sacrificing Isaac will not end Isaac's life. Abraham stakes the life of Isaac on the goodness and trustworthiness of God. Finally, Abraham rises up with wholehearted trust in God's promise and God's goodness. And like some test in quantum physics, this test affects the thing it measures. It transforms Abraham. Abraham's faith is not vague or generic. It is not a faith in the general existence of God. It is not faith in the power of God. It is not believing that he must obey God no matter what. Now, does he have that? All of that is there. 
Yes, he believes in the existence of God. Yes, he absolutely believes in the power of God. And yes, he believes that he must obey God no matter what. But that is not the kind of faith that makes him the father of the faith. Obviously, he has all of those things. No, what's particular about his faith that makes him the father of the faith are three things. Number one, he trusts in the goodness of God. God is good. And somehow, some way, in this situation, goodness will not be violated. Number two, he trusts God will keep his word. And somehow, some way, I'm going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and yet Isaac will live. I don't know how, I don't, but I believe so utterly in God's promises. And number three, he is willing to stake his heart's desire on God's goodness and God's trustworthiness. Those three things are what makes him the father of the faith. In other words, Abraham surrenders everything to God, but he doesn't surrender everything to God in the sense that he no longer wants anything. When Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done, it didn't mean he had emptied himself of his will. It meant his will contradicted the father's. You don't, you don't become a great Christian by wanting nothing but what God wants. You want what you, the desires of your heart deeply. And yet somehow you, you learn to want them and trust God with them at the same time. It's not this pious holiness that walks around like a cipher with no identity and no unique desires and no particular commitments. No, this is him coming up with all of them and not killing his desire, but trusting God with that desire that God will actually give it to him. In other words, two things are transformed in the test. Twice God responds to him. After, remember, first he calls him off and says, no, Abraham, now I see that you fear God. The first thing that's transformed is that Abraham is transformed into something glorious. This is the full flowering of his life. And the second thing that's transformed is the desire of his heart himself comes back to him bigger than he ever imagined. Because you see, he thought he was going to have a big family. He had no fat clue. He has grandchildren in Africa today, in Asia today. He is the father of faith. Right here is one of his family gatherings going on in Texas as a family gathering, in Australia, in South America. The desire of his heart was given back to him. And it was given back to him more glorious, larger than he could have ever imagined. The psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord and give up the desires of your heart. Is that what it says? No. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we long for the return of Christ, some of you got the desire of your heart when you were 8, when you were 12, when you were 20. You've never lived through this. But there are people in this room and the center has been ripped out. Trust God that he is good. And he keeps his promises. 